most people there didn't know who I was. And if they did, it was like, oh, you the car freestyle guy. It was like, okay, I got to come in here and go crazy. Like, I really have to prove myself in this place. Like, I'm here for a reason. Now let me show you why I'm here. Welcome to Making Conversation with me, Grant Bryden, a podcast about music, creativity, and careers. For this series, I've sat down with a range of artists and creative professionals in order to learn about how their unique experiences and perspectives can help us in our own creative and business practices. For this episode, I spoke to Atlanta rapper Deante Hitchcock. Deante has been making a name for himself over the past few years. Starting out with viral freestyles recorded in his car, he soon began attracting attention with projects like 2016's Good and last year's Just a Sample 2. He put in work to promote his music on the road, joining acts like Rhapsody, Black, J.I.D., Wale and Jadena on tour, and ended up with an invite to Dreamville's legendary Revenge of the Dreamers 3 sessions last year. Dante appears on PTSD, for which he received a platinum plaque and a Grammy nomination. Now he's released his anticipated debut album Better via RCA Records, and we caught up on FaceTime while he drove around Atlanta on Friday afternoon to talk about the album, how he's coping with quarantine, and his journey so far. How does it feel to finally have Better out? Man, it is it's amazing. It feels like a weight off my shoulders, for real. I'm happy to be able to finally like clear my desk, so to speak, because I'm about to say, who's sitting on Better? Probably had it done for real for like nine months. It was done like it's August as far as like recording on my part and production on my boy Brandon's part. It's been done for a minute, so it feels real good to finally get it out and get the reception that we had. The circumstances that it's been released in can't have been what you what you ever imagined, but have you kind of made the best of the situation? Uh just trying to enjoy it. Take it day by day. I mean, I couldn't feel down, but that shit ain't really serving a purpose for me at all. It's like my mom used to have this saying about getting angry with things and getting angry with people. She was like, it's drink. It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Or it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to get upset. Whatever the case is, it's like being angry is only going to hurt you. It ain't going to hurt the universe. I mean, it's not going to... Me being upset about the coronavirus is not hurting the coronavirus. So it's no point in me really being agitated like that about it. I just got to enjoy what's going on now and make the best of it. We still, like, my manager always says, he's like, the rollout is not done once the album drops. You know what I'm saying? Like, as we continue on through the next couple months, we're going to be a testament to that. We have a lot of stuff lined up in the pocket already just to try to stay in front of folks' faces. Because, you know, the usual thing that I would do, like, my, my favorite part of all of this is touring. So since we can't do that, we got to find a way to still stay kind of like just a part of the conversation. You know what I'm saying? Just staying relevant, staying in front of people's faces and staying active. Like I said, we got a lot of stuff lined up. Just content, content, content. Obviously, you had the Better Living series as well. Yeah. How did you develop that? The first week of the quarantine, I think I was good. The second one, it, it finally hit me that this probably would be around for a longer time than everybody really thought initially. So I had like two days where I was feeling down. And it was like, fuck. I feel like if I feel like this because of some touring stuff, it has to be like hella people who feel like this because of their day-to-day jobs. This, that, and the third, like, regular, regular shit that I don't necessarily have to deal with as much anymore. Like, some people are out of work. Some people got their kids at the crib. You know I mean? It's just a different circumstance. So, and some people are just sitting there bored or in their head and their feelings with anxiety and depression. So, it's like, I just wanted to give folks something to do. Something on a day-to-day basis. Like, we try to make it as fun as possible. Cooking, 
dancing, mixed drinks, like all of that, just giving people something to be able to get up and look forward to every day. You got a bunch of like local businesses and stuff involved though too, right? Yeah, my partner Tonio, actually that's one of the guys I'm going to now. He's uh, an inspiring trainer who's trying to be a professional. He's amazing, amazing at what he does. My partner Riggs, I like to say he's a bartender. Uh, my homegirl Linnea, she's a therapist and she owns a yoga studio. Like, it's just a lot of the businesses that were kind of affected by the COVID shit. Like, a lot of them had to shut down everything that they were doing once everything happened. So, definitely wanted to put a highlight on their stuff as well as my own. What sort of things have you personally done? to sort of get yourself through it. I mean, shit, the better living joy, it wasn't just for everybody else, like it was for me too, because I felt myself kind of slipping into overthinking a lot. I saw that Black had been the person who introduced you to meditation. I wondered how that conversation came about and how meditation has helped you. Have you continued to practice it and stuff? Yeah, I'm real spotty with it, but when I'm on a roll, so I think the longest that I did it consecutively was like three months. And I remember feeling like I was in a much better place. It helps me clear my mind to start the day. Like most of the time I'm I'm real I'm real not sketchy, I'm real spotty with my schedule. Like cause my life feels like it changes every other week. I feel like my schedule isn't really set. So I try my best to set it out myself, but the times that I haven't been able to do it, I mean, I've, I've noticed a significant change in how I feel. It feels like my day goes a lot smoother once I meditate because I sit down and I actually take the time to plan things out right after because I clear my head. It don't feel as cluttered. How, how did he put you onto it? And what were you using an app or something like that? It was actually while we were on tour. He sent me an article. I can't remember. I can't remember the exact article because it was like two years ago now. But he sent it to me and he broke it down. And then from there, like, he hit me to it. He was like, yo, I've been meditating every day. Literally, like, he was like, before the shows, all of that, in the morning when I get up, I've been meditating. It cleared my mind because I was asking him, how does he deal with all of this? Because at the time during the tour, I was dealing with a real, real sense of not having any really time to myself. Because it was like, all right, I wake up in the morning, I'm on the road, I'm in the car with, like, five other people or in the van, then we get to the show. We do a meet and greets. Then after the show, we do a meet and greets. Then when we get back in the road, like we're always with somebody. The only real time I had to myself was like in the bathroom, maybe taking a shower or something like that. Yeah. So 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 taking it way back to the to the beginning, what was what was your first experience of sort of feeling like you'd been affected by some music that you heard? Uh, hmm. my uncle put me on to it. I always listen my parents used to play a whole bunch of old school stuff around the house like you know on sunday mornings when they playing old music it's time to clean up and shit like that so that's like some of the oldest memories i had with it but affected i think the first time i was moved enough by music to like actually purchase it was uh bob's wow that? that was bob's the adventures of bobby rush with like uh airplanes on it yeah magic and all of that that was the first time i felt connected enough to participate so your uncle i know he wrote some some big songs was that the uncle that you mentioned was, was so was he a big influence heck yeah i about to say i think he was the main influence for real because like i didn't step into music like on my own accord it wasn't something that i just naturally gravitated to or anything like that i used to play football uh ran track and played baseball 
So the competitive factor in it was more of a thing for me once he pulled me into it because I was in a group. He started us. It was me and another dude. My name was uh, Dirty D at the time. And the other guy's name was Nasty Milk. And we were the tiny clip. And so I just always wanted to be, I wanted to rap better than the guy who was standing next to me. You know what I mean? Because, like, my uncle, he used to write my raps before I even started. For real. He wrote all my raps, got me all together. And I came to him one day. I was like, look, I got one. I came to him with a little written rap I had, stepped to him, and I ain't looked back since. So he's been a competitive thing for me for real. And because he was writing for, like, TLC and Destiny's Child, right? Yeah, yeah. I about to say, this was way before I even had anything to do with it. Oh, okay. Do, do you think it was also the fact that someone in your family had made it in music makes it that much more achievable? It was pretty cool. It wasn't like... He, he had aspirations of doing his, his own thing, like being a an act of his own, but it never really worked out that way. He got a couple writing credits, but he wanted... After he stepped back from his own like dream, because he had a group when he was, I think, 19, 20 at the time. I'm about to say, he was like 20... Dicks maybe when he started me up, 27, something like that. Yeah, after he stepped away, he wanted to like put us on. So it was like, all right, my new passion is now this group. I'm trying to get this together. So it was cool, but I don't think he ever got to realize his dreams. So he wanted to help us realize the same dream. Yeah. So when did you start to write your own raps? Probably like a year after we started. It didn't take too, too long. Nobody has written a rap for me since. Through that experience of working with him, was your experience of writing always sort of structured into song it was never just like you know freestyling without a song structure to it with him it wasn't i was say he was real song formatted when i started writing my own it was a whole bunch of like long verses yeah it was just one long verse i was like i got this let me record this i wasn't really good at writing songs through until about maybe 17 18 and then even then, like, my hooks weren't anything, anything to talk about, for real, for real. So, I was say, I just, I think probably over the last three or four years, I think I got more better with hooks. Right. There was always a level of seriousness to it, it sounds like. Yeah. Was, was there a point where you felt like, this is really me taking this seriously, or was it always that way yeah. from the start? Uh, I about to say, it definitely wasn't that way from the start, because even, all right, so I started at 11, 12, something like that. And I stopped at 14 or 15, one of the two. I stopped because I started dancing a lot. Right. I used to sing, all of that, you know what I mean? So I stopped. And then when I went, I started when I was about to go to college is when I picked it back up. Okay. It was a point in time where I was like, uh, it's cool. I don't really care about it. I just wanted to like go to the skate rink and fuck with the girls. You know what I mean, like, I was a kid. But when I got to school, I met one of my partners. He's in there. His name is Garfield. He used to shoot the videos for me and do videography for me and everything. I met him. He had just got done shooting like a video for Trinidad James at the time. I can't remember which song it was. It wasn't I'll Go Everything. I think it was like the Southside song with uh, Forte Bowie. But he had just came off of that. So he was charging to shoot videos and I have it at the time. So then I bought a camera for my homegirl, Kim. She was selling it for like $300. I bought it and I started shooting my own video. And he saw it. And from there, he was like, I fuck with you. You working? You really want to do this? Let's do it. So me and him, we still shooting to this day. Yeah, so that's when I started taking it serious again. What was the last job that you had before going full-time rapping? I was in Minnesota building snowmobiles. Yes, that was my last job. I worked for a contracting company called Strong. It was snowmobiles, four-wheelers, 
it was something else that they made. I can't remember. But the company is called Polaris. And we were up there in Roseau, Minnesota. I'm talking about in the blistering cold. I was up there for like five months. That shit sucked. It was terrible. And did you say on the album that you got laid off from that? No, that's not the one I got laid off from. All right, so the Polaris thing happened maybe like, it was like four or five months after I dropped out. But before that, I was working at Walmart. I was doing, you ever seen the guys in there selling the uh, phones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the family mobile plan phones. I was that guy. I used to have to go in there. I had a table in the back. I'd have to sit out the table. They had a little banner for me to put over the table. And I'd be chasing folks down trying to get them to buy these phones that I knew were trash. But I had to because we were working off commission. That shit sucked too. When when you dropped out of university to pursue music, yeah, what gave you that confidence to know that that was the thing to do at that time? Uh, more like a leap of faith. I mean, I guess looking back at it, it had to take confidence, but I wasn't a hundred percent confident at all. It was more like, "Fuck it, let's see what happens." Because I was looking back, it's a spot down here. It's kind of closed now. Well, not the whole spot. It's called Edgewood, but there was a venue there called the Partner Store. Where a lot of the acts would go through, like your Jigs, Earth Gang, OG Maco, uh, Key, all of those guys came through there. And that was going on back home while I was I was three hours away from home. I was in Statesboro, Georgia, and that's three hours away from the city. So I always felt like, damn, I should be there. I should be doing that. I should be a part of that movement. But I couldn't because I was in school. So one day I just said, fuck it. I'm going home. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. Whatever happens, happens. And thank God it worked out. But I was terrified, bro. Terrified. How did that go down at home with your parents and stuff? What? That's the only reason I went to Minnesota. My mom was about to kick my ass. Uh, I was at home doing the Walmart thing. It was cool, but my mom was like, yo, we need help around the crib for one. Two, you got to figure out what you finna do because you can't just be staying here. My other cousin was staying with me too, Devon. And me and him both went up to Minnesota to get the job. They were paying a crazy amount and I needed to get away from home. At what point were you making mixtapes, the first ones? Was that at college you made the first one? First one I made, I think, was right before college. It's called 19 Summers. It was either right before or like that, that first semester. I can't remember the exact date. But yeah, that was called 19 Summers. That was the first one. And then when was the second one? Wishful Thinking came... Wishful Thinking was 2013, I want to say. It was like maybe one or two semesters before I dropped out. Because I remember shooting the... Uh, promo video on like one of my last it was the semester when i dropped out it's like 2013 2014 one or two so were you kind of building a buzz around campus and stuff like that at the time with those tapes yeah but it didn't feel it didn't feel big enough like it didn't feel like it hit anywhere else so yeah. yeah it wasn't really fulfilling when do you think you started to sort of reach that sort of broader audience was that with the car freestyles i think so for real because after I got back from Minnesota, I met my producer now, Brandon Phillips Taylor, and me and him put worked on a mixtape, and it's called Good. We dropped it in 2016, but I think we had plans to drop it a lot earlier. I remember talking to one of my partners on the day we were supposed to drop the tape, and I told him, I was like, yo, we finna drop this project, check it out, let me know what you think. And he listened to it, and he called me back. He was like, yo, not being disrespectful, not being, you know what I mean, a hater, nothing like that, but if you drop this tape tomorrow, who would really give a fuck about it at all. And it was from a place of love. It was something that I really needed to hear because he was telling me, he was like, yo, 
you gotta build up your buzz before you just drop something out there because it'll be here today and gone tomorrow. So he told me take whatever it is that makes you different from the other people, the other sea of rappers that there are. Cause like everybody rapping in Atlanta, everybody. Yeah. So it's like whatever it is that makes you different from those guys, take that and put a magnifying glass on it. Try to exploit it the best way you can. And for me at that time, it was I could really, really rap in a time where most guys around Atlanta weren't really rapping at all. I about to say, I think that was like the height of the trap dominated scene for Atlanta. So that's where the car freestyles came from for me. Yeah. It worked out perfect. How did you how did you first meet Brandon? Because obviously he's been a very important part of the journey. Oh, while I was at school, I had a roommate named Reggie. Reggie President. And he had a sister back home. She was also an artist and she worked with Brandon. So Reggie sent her some of my music just to check it out. Cause he was on one of the videos that we did. So we sent it to her. She played it for Brandon. And from there, Brandon hit me up. But he hit me up right before I went to Minnesota. So I was working. I didn't get the time to really go and kick it with him or fill him out or none of that stuff. But when I, as soon as I got back, me and my cousin Matt, we went over there. Now I said, the rest is history. I guess for a rapper, you could look at it like, you know, you want to work with as many different producers as you can to get loads of different sounds and broaden as much as possible. Whereas you've really just zoned in with one producer. What made you think that that was the right thing to do for you? I don't really open up well around new people. Like, even when we met Brandon and everything, like, we went over there and let them know, like, we don't know y'all. We, we had to let them know initially upon entry, we had guns on us. It was like, look, we don't know y'all at all. We don't want it to be no problem, but we just want to let y'all know, just in case y'all on some wild shit, we do have protection. Like, don't try nothing crazy type shit. But like, I'm not really a person that opens up easy with people. I don't trust a lot. After I fill a person out and I get to know that person, it's easier for me to open up and talk about actual things that I'm dealing with. So it comes out a lot easier in the music. If I had to meet from producer to producer to producer, there wouldn't be as much vulnerability in my music because I wouldn't be talking about having that shit in front of them because I wouldn't be comfortable with it. Is that something that you've had to try and adapt as, as a musician? Because, I mean, it feels like, you know, now you've got an album out, you, you're doing interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. Is that difficult? A little bit. I haven't really had to really, like, you don't necessarily, it's kind of like a job, in a sense. Yeah. Some of the guys are cool that I've met and had actual, like, been able to have actual interactions with over time, but it's kind of like a job. It's co-work. It's real, for real. Like, I grew up, I got my circle, I got my cousins, my friends, my partners, so it's not, I'm not going into this necessarily looking for friends, but... Anybody who comes along and it's an organic type of thing, I'm definitely down with it. But that's not the MO here for me. Yeah. I'm here to make music. I mean, it's a job. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in this idea that, you know, an artist can be inspired by something, but not have to sort of make that, that same thing. And just because you like something doesn't necessarily mean that's the thing that you should make. And obviously your, your influences are very broad. How did you work out what your lane was or what your voice was? All of this shit is about balance, for Like, all of it. All of it, everything. So it's like, I'm not taking myself 100% serious all the time, and I'm not, you know what I'm saying, just always having fun. There is a level of seriousness to it, but at the same time, it's like, sometimes I want to have fun. Sometimes I do enjoy sitting in the car, riding around, listening to some introspective shit, like Cole or Kendrick or whatever the case. If I'm thinking about something and going through those same type of feelings, that hits me in my soul. And I feel that and I respect that. So I, I actually like to do that type of music as well. But by the same token, 
that I like to go out. I used to be drinking a lot. I stopped drinking lately, but I used to drink and I still smoke. So it's like I'm in those environments too where it's like I want to listen to Thug. I want to listen to Future. Shit, I want to listen to old Gucci, all of that shit. So it's it's just knowing that I'm I'm not either one of those things. Like, I'm a person, so I got all of these different parts of me. So I'm not just this conscious rapper. I'm not just this trap rapper and none of that shit. I'm all of it. Yeah. I'm very blessed to be from Atlanta because I think we've seen it done well so many times and by so many different people. Like for every Andre 2000 we got, we got a future. For every CeeLo Green we got, we got a thug. And they all do it to a high level. So we get to see it done right. So some of them influence, we have great influences. I love sort of like in Nights in the South when you, you know, you reference Gucci and you reference these things, but it's like, a very different type of song than than they would do yeah with the car freestyle what was the sort of feeling going into the first one and and why do you think that it got as viral and kind of did as well as it did for you i got into a car accident first like because all right so my partner told me to do figure out what it was that made me different from everybody but at the time i couldn't figure out what it was like and god put the play together i don't know how but it just happened I was stewing my brain. I was racking my brain trying to figure out what it was. And then I got into a car accident. And the people who hit me, they were paid. So for a rental car, I got this drop-top Camaro. And, like, I had it for, like, a month. I was riding around in that mud everywhere. So my little brother, he came to me one day. He was like, you should do a rap video. He was like, yeah, I recorded whatever case. Just do a rap video. So literally the first one I did is to uh, watch out, little bitch. That's the first one I did. And I did it in the Camaro. Like, you could see the top dropping in the videos. I was just flexing in that car. And from there, I think I got hit up by Wale first. I was like, oh shit, what the fuck? This is it, I'ma keep doing these. So from there, I just kept going. It obviously reached a point though for you where you had to then remove yourself from just being the kid in the car and have to try and get people onto your music. Yeah. How was that transition? And how did you kind of foresee this is the time to try and make people switch? I didn't want that stigma. I didn't want to be pigeonholed. It's just that guy. You know, a lot of the times we see a shit they battle rap, but they probably can't make a song. And I felt like that's where it was going. Something that started out for me, it started out being real fun. It started out being real freeing for me. And then over time, it was just like, damn, this is cool, but this is not my end-all, be-all. And it feel like that's what people are trying to make it out to be. So I had to kind of step back away from it. I'm about to say now, I feel like this project has helped solidify more of the music versus the freestyle. So I feel like I can go back to it now with a little more of the same vibe that I had coming into it. It feels fun again versus necessity. You appeared in J. Cole's HBO documentary as a fan yeah, way yeah. before the yeah. Dreamville sessions happened last year. What originally attracted you to J. Cole and his music? I had an uncle that stayed with me, my Uncle Thomas. Just a different uncle from the one earlier. He stayed with us, uh, I think I was in eighth grade at the time. It was either eighth or going in the ninth, one or the two. And he had put me on to Cole. He put me on to Crit. Somebody else, I think I'm forgetting, that just didn't pan out the same way those two did. But he definitely put me on to Cole and Crit. And I was young at the time. And, like, he put me on to Crit was here. He put me on to the warm-up, all that shit. From there, I just followed everything that they did. So I was about to say, to get to that point, to see him, get as big as he is, I mean, over time, it was just inspiring. He was talking about a lot of the shit that I felt like I was dealing with, I mean, like, especially at that time, 
through the college transition, this, that, and the third, wanting to drop out, wanting to leave, dealing with the pressures that come with like regular, regular shit, I could just relate to it. So I fuck with them heavy. Where were you creatively at that point that you were at that show? I'm trying to remember exactly when that show was. It's Dollar in the Dream concert. I was. I think it was 2015. So it was kind of a new thing then, if that's the case. At that time, is when it was, and it was a new field. Because that's when I kind of met up with me. And I was kind of getting my feet wet with our recordings and shit. So I don't know, it was just, it felt new. Right. You know what I mean? So definitely a new field. Just trying to figure out how I was going to go about it, where this was going to go. I think I probably had just started the car freestyles too then, if that's the case. So yeah, everything was just kind of new. Right. Felt good. Yeah, yeah. It feels like you've managed to maintain the feeling of like being a fan a music fan while you're also an artist because i feel like some some people either lose it or maybe they just don't want to share it as much Uh, do you keep on top of everything that's coming out not everything i try my best to i really do try my best to because like coda just dropped something today i say that shit out immediately great i was listening to the uh, new gunner before i pulled it right before i called you i was on like track four i think straight yeah i mean so I, i try my best to keep up with as much stuff as possible because I like hearing new sounds. I like hearing what folk are up to, you know what I mean? Like, all we do is take influence and we turn it into our own thing. That's what art is, is remixing shit and figuring out how to put your own flag and your own twist and create. So, I mean, you gotta be inspired to create and find inspiration listening to other creators. So yeah, I try my best. I always remember that part in that Lil Wayne documentary where he talks about how he only listens to his own music crazy i don't know how he did so good for so long not listening to anybody that's just insane to me dog do you listen to your own music now yes if you would ask me this question two years ago it would have been hell no it took me a long time to even like like my voice on records i used to hate my voice all of that so i think after just the sample two drop actually right before that it was like a tracks like ascension thinking about you wide open those are some of the first ones where i was like damn i might play this just listening myself type shit out if i'm in the car i might play my own stuff it just always felt weird to me yeah but then i started to like it more so yeah i play it now when you weren't comfortable with your own voice how did you know how well you were doing i just gauged it from other people right like people around me they'd be like this shit crazy i'd be like all right cool i guess guess this is it it is what it is but i couldn't tell like even listening, going beyond shit like that, I don't think I have the greatest ear in the world. I think God blessed me to be able to create, but I can't always hear the hit or I can't always hear the melody or any of that shit. Like, I don't know all the time. Because it might be because I'm so immersed in it that I can't really step back and realize it, but I don't think I have that gift. So I'm about to say, I'm, I'm very open to hearing feedback and shit like that. Because, and then I know my perspective is not the only one. So if I hear a lot of people like certain songs, I know, okay we're on to something if it's just one person then i'm still on to something but it's not as effective i mean so i'm definitely on the feedback and i definitely like listening to people for pains i know when the dreamville sessions first got announced you were initially frustrated because you thought you hadn't been invited yeah how how did you deal with that feeling i just said fuck it i'm gonna work like if i'm not invited to to this one i'm gonna be invited to the next one for sure like whatever i do this year if they don't invite me to whatever the fuck this is, whatever I do this year is going to make it so they can't not invite me to the next one. 
I felt not disrespected because don't nobody owe me anything, but it was like, all right, I know, I knew G and Herb Gang at the time. I met Boss. Uh, he knew about the music then and talked a couple times. I met Cole, I think, like twice. So it was like, if this was in L.A. or something, I'd be cool. If it was in New York, I would have been cool. It was like, y'all came all the way to Atlanta, and ain't nobody called me by nothing. Oh, yeah, I got a chip on my shoulder. But I about to say, ultimately, all of that shit just turned into the golden ticket being put in my inbox the next day. So I just got to go in there and do my thing, and it felt real good, real good. So the chip wasn't there for long. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was that experience like? Insane, bro insane i was saying not even just just for the reference itself it was like the the fucking bucks were in there one day the whole bucks team giannis george hill all them guys they kind of like brought donuts for everybody one day chris bosh was in there making beats literally like all right it was me shmino monty i think buddy maybe young baby tate kyle it was all of us in this little room uh, i don't know if you're familiar it was called 222 it was one of our favorite rooms in there. It was a smaller room, but it was real intimate. And a lot of our favorite songs came from that room. But Chris Bosch, like if you open the door to the room, there's a space where somebody can sit behind it. So you can't, the person, whoever's right there, you can't really, you ain't really paying too much attention to them because the door keeps getting open. You can't really see them. Yeah. The door closed. We was in there for a minute. And then bro was like, hey, check out this beat. The person who was sitting back there, it was Chris fucking Bosch making beats in the room that time bro it was insane it was like willy wonka in the chocolate factory for rappers bro yeah it was that since there was so many talented people there how did you make sure that you still made an impact and cut through i still had i had kind of like i don't say rookie syndrome well never mind i had like the rookie thing going because i when i stepped in i felt like i knew everybody like i knew who smino was i knew who saba was I knew, you know, of course, DJ Khaled, Rick Ross, Wale. I knew all those guys. But most people there didn't know who I was. And if they did, it was like, oh, you the car freestyle guy. It was like, okay, I got to come in here and go crazy. Like, I really have to prove myself in this place. Like, I'm here for a reason. Now let me show you why I'm here. So that's how I felt for me the entire time. Did you get a lot of stuff recorded that hasn't been released or that will, might be released in the future? It, it's a lot of records. Like, me and Tay Keith. We got something crazy. And I ain't heard it since those sessions, bro. I need to hear Eve up. You just reminded me, actually. I need to hear him up today and get those songs. How did you develop your live setup initially? And why was it important for you to get to the point where you were playing with a live band? Oh, because it, it just feels different for real. Like, when you go to a show, like, most of the shows that you actually remember, they feel like experiences versus just a rapper walking back and forth on the stage. Like, even without the live band, I try to make it, as, as 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 memorable as possible like the energy on the stage got to be crazy because rappers a lot of the times like sometimes they'll rap over the track sometimes they'll walk back and forth on stage with no energy at all it's like that's not a show i didn't pay to see you kind of lip sync some shit i could do in my crib but you got to give me something i think the band always adds a different type of effect dog. like drums make me feel different on stage different like that shit is something that goes through me. It adds a whole nother boost of energy. So all of that shit plays a part. Like, people still like live music, man. Cliché is the same. So people still enjoy that shit. What were your earliest shows like? Ooh, wasn't that good. I remember at 16, I think, this, this, damn, now that I'm thinking about it, it was either 15 or 16. 
but this might have been the reason I stopped and started dancing. Fuck, I never even put that together. I got booed off the stage. I had to perform at somebody's Sweet 16. And like the music I was making at that time, it was real like conscious, like real hip hop type shit. And 16 year old in Atlanta, she ain't trying to hear that shit. But when I went, they booked me to perform. I went up there and did that shit. Bro, they booed me off stage. Booed me. And I think, damn, that's crazy. I never thought about why I stopped. That, that actually might be the reason. Yeah, live shows weren't that great back then. And how many shows did you end up doing with the live? Because I'm guessing when you were on tour, you were, when you were support act, you didn't have a live band. I didn't. Nah, we didn't have the band. We had, we had a partial band for the Rhapsody tour. Like, we had keys and the DJ. We didn't have the drums or uh, guitar or anything like that. But on the, all of the other tours, we haven't had live band at all. Just because it's, it's extremely costly. Yeah. Yeah, when we go for like our own tour, maybe not the first one, but like the second or third, we definitely bring the band out. So was the band for like some festivals and things like that that you did? Yeah. Yeah. It was like spot dates pretty much. We'd be able to go ahead and do that. It's like, okay, we get one big check, we can pay for it. Versus like some of the tours, we didn't get paid at all. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I can't, can't really afford to pay for gas, hotels, travel, salary for a tour manager, driver, photographer, all that. I couldn't afford to pay for a band on top of that. Couldn't do it. It's pretty rare that rappers put out live albums like that. Yeah. Obviously, you got the good live album, and I wondered what made you want to record it and put it out like that. Really, it just started off as wanting to do a show. I didn't I didn't have any uh, aspirations about recording it or putting it out or anything like that. The place that we ended up booking, my manager put me on to, was called 800 East down here. And so we wanted like a small little intimate show, probably like maybe 50 to 75 people. They told us, they were like, we got it set up to where it can be recorded as well. If y'all want the live recordings, it's like 50 extra dollars, y'all can have them. So we got the live recordings, and from there, we listened back to them after we were done. Like, these shits actually sound pretty damn good. So, no pun intended. So then we put it out, and went from there, and a lot of people really enjoyed it. So it's like, I'm probably going to do that probably a couple more times. It allows people to step into that world without necessarily having to be there. You get to break down songs, you get to like play around with certain shit. Like it's it's a good time. You've really put in a lot of work in the live sector, supporting Rhapsody and and Black and Jid and Wale, Jadena. Did you see a real growth in your fan base from doing that? Hell yeah! I had this little thing. Well, even before that, when I was in college, I used to drink. Everclear, like terrible decisions, but we used to drink that shit. It's like 90% alcohol, probably took five years off of my life already, but I stopped now, so we good. But when we got to touring, at the end of each set, I would tell people, I was like, yo, you enjoyed the show, it's that and third, like follow me on Instagram, follow me on Twitter, all of that. If I don't get 200 or 300 followers, I gotta go to the back and take three shots of Everclear. And folks would be like, what? Everclear? And we're taking our phones out right now and following you right now. Because if you like the music, you don't want me to die. And if I go back there and take three shots of Everclear, ain't going to be too more, much more music for long. So yeah, folks used to follow off of that. And I'm about to say over time, like we went on, I think six tours, six or seven tours, something like that. And over time, the number just kept climbing. I don't know if it was just because they didn't want to see me die or if they really enjoyed the music. But whatever it is, it worked. How is that experience of being the support act? Is it sometimes difficult? Yeah, 
kind of like paying your dues. I mean, cause like we didn't we didn't get paid for a couple tours. I mean, we were just out there. So it's like, look, we here to kind of like get our name up. It's it's the the cliche thing, uh, exposure. Yeah. We don't have a budget, but it's exposure. It's like when you don't have the career to necessarily leverage that yet. Shit, take it. Grind your ass off until you will. Uh, until you do. And then one day you will, you know what I mean? Then you can, like, demand whatever you think you're worth. I knew I was worth something then, but it's like, I feel like if I would have pushed it too much, we wouldn't even have those looks. Like, we wouldn't have been on those tours. Those tours were blessing. As stressful as they were in some parts, they were equally beneficial. You know what I mean? If not more, for real, for real. Yeah. It's definitely a struggle, but it's just like planting a seed. That shit gonna grow one day, and you're gonna be happy that you planted it. How did touring affect better, affect the way that you make music? It changed all that shit, for real. Like, it started from, like, the conversations me and Jay were having just about music. We were talking about our approach to shit, because, you know, we were real lyrical, miracle. You know what I mean? Like, we rap, rap. So sometimes, like, when you at a show and you just rapping for that long, the people in the crowd can't necessarily do that all the time. So it becomes more of a spectacle than a, a interactive show. And we really wanted to step away from that. So that, that was a lot of the conversations that we had while we was on the road. So when we got home, when me and B got home, we made 80% of this album in like two or three weeks. And literally like, got money now, attitude, give me your money, growing up, mother God. All those songs came after we got home. And those songs, like we really stepped in with the intent of like, this has to sound good at a show. Growing up, mother God is one of my favorites, so I just wondered what the process of writing that song was like for you. I got a series called uh, Talking to God. I got a one and two so far. Originally, that last verse was going to be Talking to God 3, but I ended up naming it Mother God just because the way I was feeling at the time was like really highlighting a lot of the women in my mom's, my girl, my aunts, my grandma, my little sister, and my whole girl that passed, Brianna. I don't know, I don't know, it just felt right naming the mother guy. It felt real representative for him. Process, I got to the point after we got home, I was riding my bike every day. We got a lake in our neighborhood. It's kind of like about a mile and a half from my crib. So I was riding the bike every day to the lake. I would go to the lake and I'd write. And then I couldn't go home until I finished the verse. So I went to the lake. Probably like a week after we got back, wrote that verse, came back home, and we got a puppy. With Better being considered the debut album, what did you put in place to ensure that it felt like a step up from all the previous work? I think the preparation was different than any other project we've put together so far. Like, we shot a lot of the videos and a lot of, like, promotional content beforehand, and I'm, I'm real thankful that we did because we didn't see this corona shit coming at all. So that, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So definitely uh, preparation. I think the promo even on the labels part, it's just different too. It's like an album versus an EP, it feels like a lot more goes behind the album, like a lot more press, a lot more promo, all of that. So just seeing the difference, man, preparation for our side and then promo for their side. And promo for us as well, actually, yeah. So promo and preparation. What do you want people to take away from this album? That it's only better, it's not best, and the best is still yet to come. They got a lot of uh, figuring out to do. This shit's only gonna get even more lit than it is right now. Did you have personal like expectations or ambitions for what you want this album to do? Personal expectations, yeah. I don't think like number wise, cause it's like 
first week numbers for kind of like emerging artists don't really seem like they matter at all for real no more. It's kind of like breaking through. It was kind of just trying to get to hit a checkpoint, so to speak. Like to feel like, okay, now it's respected now. We've been talking about album of the year. It's like, fuck, I wouldn't expect that type of shit at all. So it feels really, really good to finally feel like the respect is there. I mean, like the the craft is taken serious versus like hearing, oh, you're so underrated all the time. It's like, bro, that shit get old. Stop telling me I'm underrated. I do not want to hear that shit. I saw a fan asked you about songs that you recorded that didn't make the album. You said there was a lot. How did you get it down to the 10 tracks that that are on the final version? Going back to uh, what I was saying earlier about my ear, I, I don't feel like I always have the best ear when it comes to that. So it was a lot of arguments. I think better changed four or five times. We sat down and we were just sitting through trying to figure out what sounded the best together. And that's what we landed on. Some of my favorite tracks didn't make it at all. Like, I trust all the people around there, there for a reason. I mean, so I don't want to ever get to the point where it's like, I'm just feeling like I'm doing everything myself and it's just all me, but it's not. How did it feel when you had this this final work of, body of work ready to go that you'd been wanting to put out and you have to wait for this whole sort of sample clearance legal part? That shit sucks. Sample clearance the first part of this entire thing. Because like, all right, so Circles, the Circles, the original song that, well, what I thought was the original was the song by Splatfack. And around and around we go, but apparently they sampled that song too. Right. And we had to not only get it cleared by them, but we had to go and find the original guys and get it cleared by them too. So that was a whole strenuous ass process, dog. But I think the, the worst part for the artists who have to deal with that is trying to get the consumer to understand those type of things. Because I, I tried to explain it on Twitter one day. I was like, yo, we're waiting on sample clearances, this, that, and the third. We can't put the project out yet because we're waiting on that. But and even if some people do understand it, your whole audience might not even see that that one tweet. So the next day, folks was asking again, like, yo, what the fuck going on? Where the project at? I just started trolling people. It was like, fuck it. If we're going to wait, we're going to make it entertaining. We're going to find off just going to start fucking with y'all. Fuck it. So... What's the most difficult thing that you've had to overcome in your career so far? Really just building up that resilience. Because you hear no so many times. It's like, if you let the first no take you out, you ain't really want this shit. Hey, man, we hear no a lot going into it. So just building up tough skin, thick skin. It's like every critique that you hear ain't always going to be right. Like, I done heard some shit that I said, nah, that ain't it. I ain't really feeling it. And it turned out to be some of the biggest shit in the world. It's like people be wrong, and you gotta understand that. They ain't nothing personal, nothing like that. They not feeling what you're putting down. Maybe somebody else is. Just keep going. Believe in that shit. You love it. Don't stop. Keep doing it. What are you most proud of about what you've achieved so far? Man, I'm not gonna cap you down. That platinum track, that feels really, really good. And I like. We ain't even got them yet, but they're supposed to be on the way. Interscope went ahead, got everybody who was involved at Plax and shit, so they're supposed to be sending them out soon. But that, that and the Grammy night, those feel really, really good. Especially because I didn't think any of that shit was going to happen this early. I mean, like, I thought that'd be like maybe four or five years into my shit, but to be this early, it feels really good. Perfect. And lastly, what does success look like to you? Happiness. Right. Minus all this extra shit, like, 
I know I want 10 years in this black. When tears come, like, what's, what's, it's 2020 now? By 2030, I'm trying to be gone. I'm trying to have my kids. I'm trying to get, uh, maybe I can fade into the background on the business side, whatever the case, but I'm not trying to be out in the forefront of this anymore. I want to retire with my kids, with my family, with my wife, get the crib popping, you know what I'm saying? Like, in the backyard, have a dog, all that shit. That's it. I just want to be happy. Whatever happiness ends up looking like, that's what I want. Thank you for listening to Making Conversation with Grant Bryden featuring Deontay Hitchcock. If you like this episode, then please be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts. You can find Deontay on socials at DeonteVH and listen to his new album, Better, available on streaming services now. You can find me on social media at Grant Bryden. <laughs>